Good evening. Welcome to our Bible class for this Wednesday night. Have your Bible ready in Romans chapter 13. The first seven verses. Romans chapter 13. We are in that part of Romans where Paul is writing to Christians there, revealing instruction for their attitude, their relationship with people, their reaction to events, and even their reaction to enemies, and in this passage, their relationship and response to government. And all of that we will find application for us today. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, after prayer. Heavenly Father, we express to Thee our praise and our interest in Thy Word to guide us and lead us in the way of Christ. Help us to listen to think, to examine ourselves, and determine to live closer to Thee. In the name of Christ who died for us, we pray. Amen. Romans 13, starting at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. The first thing I see here that I believe we need to emphasize is captured in a single phrase in verse 1 of Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. We have repeatedly used the expression, even in recent classes here in Romans, the sovereignty of God. And we mean by that, He is supreme he has the right to do anything he wills to do. The gospel plan was and is God's. We went through that in chapters 9 through 11. And here's another way to speak of the sovereignty of God as the creator. There is no authority except from God. In the sermon I'm going to deliver this coming Sunday morning, I'm going to start in Isaiah 52 in verse 7. God reigns. And I'm going to mention Ephesians 4 in verse 6. God is over all. And this 
fits right in with those statements about the sovereignty of God. There is no authority except from God. See, God is the creator. Therefore, the owner of everything and everyone. So this proposition, once acknowledged by us, enables us to understand everything we need to understand about human authority that we are under here on earth. God is above all. No man is God's equal. Certainly no man is God's superior. God is above all. That's just the starting place for what Paul is going to develop in these seven verses. Our understanding of obligation to human authority needs to begin with clarity about the higher authority. God is supreme. Now, from that truth, we should understand that God ordained or appointed or instituted the role of government. This does not mean God approves of what every government official does. But it means that God set up the function. God has ordained that there be law enforcement and civil government. Preachers used to say that God set up three institutions. I heard this all of my youth. The church, the home, and the government. Now, so long as we do not misdefine the word institution, that's correct. God instituted, that is to say, he set this into place, that there be this system of men governing their fellow men for the purpose of order and peace and the punishment of evildoers. So knowing this, my position as a Christian, your position as a Christian should be to be subject to the governing authorities. And it can be stated in these terms. If God sets something up, I cannot ignore that. I cannot impulsively rebel against it or disobey or try to tear it down. Now, I will go ahead and say this early in our study of Romans 13 that there is certainly what we sometimes call the Acts 529 exception. That's again in, in my youth the way it was described to me in Bible classes and in sermons. The Acts 529 exception. Here's what that's about. Peter and John were told by the authorities in Jerusalem, stop preaching. No more gospel. No more Lord's work. Stop preaching. And Peter and John said, we cannot obey that command. And that leads to what we call the Acts 529 exception. When human authorities, when officials here on earth tell us to disobey God, we must always say no. We must not obey them in that matter where they tell us to operate on cross purposes with God. That's the exception. But otherwise... When that exception does not apply, this says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This submission is submission to that which God has set in place. 
Listen again to the first verse. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You can make a note of this. I'll not go into it now in detail. But John 19.11, when Pilate told Jesus that he, Pilate, had power to free or to crucify. Jesus said to him that he would have no power at all if it had not been given to him from above. So, we start with this very simple concept. If God set it up, I must respect it with only the one exception that is described in Acts 5, 29. Verse 2, therefore, is a conclusion, and it begins with that word that signals a conclusion. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. In the English Standard Version, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. To know that God sets something up and just go ahead and resist it and disobey and rebel. Paul says people so engaged bring judgment or incur judgment on themselves. This just follows. If verse 1 is valid, and we believe it is, verse 2 just follows. It's a conclusion. To know that God instituted civil government, but go ahead and resist it and disobey it, rebel against it, Paul says, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. It cannot be ignored or slighted that God, who is the holder of all authority, ordained that there be earthly authorities that we submit to. We cannot just ignore that walk around it because of our political or personal agendas or based on policy disagreement, just disobey the law. We can't do that. You with me? You see that? Very clear. Verse 3 adds, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So, we're back to this. If you know that God set this system up, that God set up that there be civil government, and he approves of the concept of human rule and law enforcement, and you do not resist, then there's no need to be afraid. The passage shouldn't bring fear into your heart if you're compliant with civil government. Those who rule pose no threat, all other things being equal. Those who rule pose no threat to those whose lives are marked with good deeds. If those law officers are acting in good faith and with integrity, they pose no threat to me or to you so long as we're doing what's right. It is the one who does evil who needs to fear the authority. Simple illustration. I know there may be two or three people here who can identify with this. 
If there is a police officer driving behind you, you don't need to be nervous about that unless you're in violation of the law. And then that will come right into your mind, correct? You don't need to be afraid or nervous about the officer behind you unless you look down and you're a little in violation of the law. Maybe you're on your cell phone in a school district or a couple of miles per hour ahead of the limit. Then you're going to have some concern. But broader than that, rebels, disobedient citizens, criminals, violators of the law ought to be afraid. If good people do what is good, good rulers will not be a threat to them. Let me put it that way. If good people do what is good, good rulers will not be a threat to them. Assuming that those good rulers are acting honestly within their assigned framework of duty and authority. So let's put verses 1, 2, and 3 together. And it all fits so well. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Let me pause there. Questions or comments about what we've studied so far? Paul is very clear about our relationship to civil government. Verse 4 brings this teaching to a specific level having to do with the official. We've been talking about the system and the concept of law enforcement, but now we're going to get even more specific with the official. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. One way God can respond to evildoers is through his appointed avengers. Now, tie that in with what we studied back in the latter part of chapter 12 in the previous class. You remember we were talking about you can't take vengeance yourself. I'm going to get him. I'm not waiting for the police to show up. I'm going to take care of him and I'm going to punish him beyond, way beyond just defending myself and my family. I'm going to break some bones and just give him, I'm going to execute the punishment. We talked about the fact that Paul said vengeance belongs to the Lord. Well, one way the Lord can take vengeance against evildoers and criminals is through this system that he put in place. One way God can respond to evildoers is through his appointed avengers. If a man robs, murders, rapes, God can get him through his avengers in civil government. Now, if he doesn't repent, God will eventually get him. But God can get him here through the system that is put in place when good officials act according to their assigned Duty. Verse 4 is sort of like 
putting evil people on notice, but at the same time comforting good citizens. Okay? Think of it that way. Verse 4 is sort of like putting evil people on notice, but at the same time comforting good citizens. God has a system in place to govern people, to protect the innocent, and to punish the evildoers. The ruler, the official, serves as an instrument of God for the benefit of society. Now, I want you to think back to the Old Testament. Think back to Old Testament history for a moment. I'm reminded of Cyrus, the Persian emperor, who God appointed to carry out his will. Isaiah 44, 28, Isaiah 45, 1, and reference in Jeremiah 25, 9. Now, was Cyrus a perfect man? No. Cyrus was no perfect man, but God used him for his purposes to benefit his people. The ruler serves as the agent of God. That doesn't mean that the agent is perfect or that the agent of government will be eventually saved because he's been a good agent of government. It doesn't mean that at all. The ruler serves as the agent of God when he acts within the laws of God in his function as a civil servant. So verse 4 is putting evil people on notice, but at the same time comforting good citizens. Now, again we have an occasion where Paul puts a conclusion in. And so here is our signal word for a conclusion. Therefore, in verse 5. Therefore, and it's a repetition of what he taught earlier, one must be in subjection. But then he adds this. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There are two reasons to be an obedient citizen wherever you live. One, because of wrath. That is to stay out of trouble, to avoid punishment, stay out of jail, and not wind up in eternal punishment as a subject of God's wrath. That's one reason. The other reason is good conscience. I want to do what's right. For conscience sake, that means because good, compliant citizenship is right. It is right before God. We need to know to disobey the laws of the land except where they contravene the express will of God, the Acts 5.29 exception. To disobey the laws of the land is to violate the purpose of God himself in ordaining or setting up that there might be such a system. There is the Phillips translation that some of you may be familiar with. It's a paraphrase. It shouldn't be your primary translation, but it's vivid from time to time. In Phillips' translation, he says, not simply because it is the safest, but because it is the right thing to do. God's people of all people on earth ought to be motivated 
as expressed in this phrase, the right thing to do, the right thing about the Lord, the right thing about your family, the right thing about your neighbors, and the right thing about your community, and the right thing about your government, the right thing to do. That brings us down at the end of verse 5. Questions or comments? 6 and 7. It's going to get difficult now. 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. You, You heard the tone? Isn't that how we generally read that? Read that. For because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, you already know that part of this does not arouse within your heart immediate joy. And I can see that on the countenances of people when I read that. There there just seems to be no immediate joy when you bring up that word taxes. It just signals a negative emotion. For the most part, we don't like to do this. And there are reasons why we don't like it. Uh, The system is complicated and cumbersome. We are not pleased with the way politicians use our tax dollars. It seems to us there are more taxes. Some taxes seem to go up all the time and we are disturbed by government waste. So generally, we don't like this. The tax systems in place in the time of Jesus were unfair and oppressive. Anybody remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22? Just a little louder. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So that system was unfair. Zacchaeus teaches us that. Zacchaeus repented of that. That system was oppressive. But Jesus and Paul, Paul lives under Nero. Do you think Nero set about to put in place a fair tax system? He killed Christians. But Jesus and Paul said, pay your taxes. Now, I want us to consider it another way. Consider it in terms of a biblical principle. Moses taught it, Jesus taught it, and Paul taught it. And here it is. The laborer is worthy of his hire. We ought to think about that when we complain about taxes. We ought to think about that. The primary reason we ought to pay taxes is God said it. Taxes to whom taxes are due. But there is another reason. The laborer is worthy of his hire. I don't want the man who comes to my house to enforce the law, to be living in poverty. Do you? I don't want the firemen, the men I expect to come put the fire out at my house or this building, to be living in poverty. The laborer is worthy of his hire. 
the soldiers who protect our freedom. I want them to be able to feed their families, don't you? I want them to have medical care. I want them to have good transportation. I want those men to be taken care of. So when we grumble about the taxes, and I know the reasons that we grumble about it, here's something that can moderate our attitude about the system. The laborer is worthy of his hire. There are good people in law enforcement and in government, and they ought to be paid. And they ought to be paid well enough that they can take care of their families. The laborer is worthy of his hire. So taxes to whom taxes are due. All right, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And then we'll get to some takeaways. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Questions or comments? Romans 13, 1 through 7. Turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Here's something that comes up when we study 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, and when we study Romans 13, 1 through 7. We're going to think through something now that comes up and see if we can think through it well based on our loyalty to God's Word. 
Reading this in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and the reference we made to rendering unto Caesar back in Matthew 22, many Americans will say, well, what about the American Revolution? And some have wondered or even argued if this is true in Romans 13 and if this had have been followed, it is sometimes argued there would have been no American Revolution and no America as we know it. Here's what I want to ask us to think about. What men do that we read about in the pages of history, right or wrong, with good or bad results, must never cause us to question the plain teaching of Scripture. Let me say that again. What men do, we read about on the pages of history, right or wrong, with good results or bad results, must never cause us to question the plain teaching of Scripture. We cannot back away from Romans 13 because of our interpretation of our nation's history. What God says here is true and right, and it was true and right even before this country was settled. Regardless of what the forefathers of our nations believed or did or wrote, this was written by an inspired apostle of Christ. Okay? Let's go to another level about it. It is argued by some, however, that in the case of the American Revolution, while we cannot discover all the motives of every leader, one primary motive for many fell within the Acts 5.29 exception. Now, there were multiple reasons for the American Revolution. Of course, most of us in history class were taught, you remember that phrase, taxation without representation. That's what most of us were taught. But if we studied a little further, we discovered there were multiple reasons for the American Revolution. And one reason was suppression of free religious practice. Though that might not be primary in the history books, in fact, that was one of the reasons people came. And as that was applied in the 1700s from England against the colonists, many argued that they were not able to do what they believed the Bible said in that old country. That in fact, authorities, and there's historical evidence for this, were forbidding the practice and preaching of the Bible, particularly when that preaching and practice was against the interest of the Church of England. Some of you have studied history more than I have. If I'm wrong about that, don't let me go home without being corrected. But at least some of those people who came across were suffering with suppression of free religious practice. Many of them were called Puritans. And the Puritans believed, and I think they were right about this, that a church that is under a king is wrong unless the king is Jesus. 
Now, listen to that again. Let that ring around. The Puritans argued, whatever their practice might have been, in terms of measuring it by the New Testament, the argument was common among Puritans who came across that a church that is under a king is wrong unless the king is Jesus. Now, we agree with that, don't we? We agree with that. Thus, it may not be an absolute that in all cases the leaders of the revolution were acting against Romans 13. Some may well have been latching on to the Acts 5.29 exception. But either way, my loyalty to a nation and my interpretation of history cannot become the basis of what I believe and teach about Romans 13. It cannot become the basis of what I believe and teach about Romans 13. You see what I mean? If I've been unclear about that, just speak up and tear into me, quietly. All right, let's tackle something else. If I made it this far, maybe maybe I can go, go a little further. Romans 13 is nonpartisan. We cannot bring with us into our study and application of Romans 13 any political preference or partisan loyalty. Doesn't fit in Romans 13, 1-7. This passage says one thing, and it says it to the left and the right. It says it to Republicans and Democrats and anyone in between. And in discussions and applications of this teaching, we must be careful with our issues and our agitations and our disagreements. This passage has always meant one thing. When Paul wrote it, it meant one thing, and it means the same thing today. It is not fluid or flexible. It doesn't depend upon the changing partisan loyalties that we may have. It's Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities. You still with me? All right. I'm going to venture on. It's not that I'm trying to get in trouble. I'm just, I'm just going to move on to something else I think we need to talk about. Someone may say when we're reading this passage, oh, but we have bad government. We have leaders who are not what they should be. I want you to go back and read about Claudius and Nero and Domitian. I want you to go back and read about the Roman and Jewish authorities who took Jesus to the cross. Was that good or bad government? That's pretty bad government, isn't it? Claudius and Nero were not good people. But there's another approach I want to use that may help give us clarity. I want you to listen to these questions. I'm going to move outside the context and then I'll come back to it. Have any of you ever known of a bad preacher? Don't need to raise your hand and I hope you will say present company accepted, but we've all known of bad preachers, right? Have you ever drawn the conclusion that since there are bad preachers, preaching is bad? No, you don't do that. Um, Have you ever known of a local church 
that became corrupt rejecting the teaching of Scripture. We all know of that. Have you ever made the leap from that conclusion to say there shouldn't be local churches? Well, some have, but that's not good reasoning. It's not sound reasoning. So, have you ever known of a husband or wife to fall into sin? Has that ever led you to conclude that marriage is altogether bad? See what I mean? What more do I need to say? There are always going to be bad rulers, bad governments, governments that become corrupt and twisted and owned by money, and men ruling that we just don't like. What is constant is God wants societies to be governed. God wants societies to be governed. God set up that there be government and law enforcement, and unless we are compelled to do wrong, according to Acts 5.29, this says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Anything else? All right. We continue in Romans 13 on the Lord's Day. Thank you.